one. Kids, you're dismissed for Gospel Project. We hope you have a, a great time as you continue working your way through the Bible. Thanks to all of you who are helping to lead them. Um, everybody else will be, as Tad said, in his prayer in Philippians 2. So why don't you go ahead and turn there with me. We've made it to uh, the second chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath the chair in front of you. And um, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it has a table of contents like most books. You can look up in the New Testament, the book called Philippians, in chapter 2. Please feel free to take that Bible with you if you don't have one of your own. That is um, our gift to you. Uh, there's a gorgeous hike up in Flagstaff called the Mount Humphrey Summit Trail. How many in here have done that hike? A few. All right, there's a few weird ones. Um, this hike is incredible. It winds through meadows and aspens. There's big boulders in one section you go through, and there's a whole bunch of these weird things that are brown, and they have green things at the top. It's called trees, I think. It's incredibly uh, beautiful. You even climb up on this hike above uh, the tree line. It's incredibly beautiful. It's also incredibly annoying. Uh, the last leg of the hike has multiple places where as you're sucking air, trying to survive, you think that spot is going to be the top of the mountain. And when you get there, you define what? Those of you who have done it, you got more left. So those of you who are hikers know that those spots on the mountains are called false peaks. So it's the illusion, if I can just survive and make it to that spot, I'll be at the top, only to discover there's more to go. Uh, this hike in particular has a bunch of those, false peaks. Today we come to a passage in the book of Philippians about Jesus that is no false peak. It is the very height of the biblical story, the biblical revelation about who Jesus Christ is. It doesn't get any higher than this. Now, by that, I don't mean the rest of the book is unimportant, quite the opposite, but in a sense, it will be fleshing out or working out for us what we find in this passage uh, today. So before we read it, just a, a quick word to those of you in the room who are not yet sure about Christianity. You're still considering the claims of Christ and the Bible. The front half of this sermon today is of particular importance to you. Uh, you may have heard someone say along the way that Christianity is mainly about your behavior. And that was wrong. That's not actually true at all. Christianity is mainly about beliefs. And it's about how beliefs will transform behavior. And so today what we're going to do is open up God's Word and say, Here's what Christians believe about Jesus. Now, does that impact our behavior? Of course. But that's not mainly what Christianity is. The central claim of Christianity is not an ethic or a moral or an ideology or a habit to start or even one to stop. Christianity is ultimately about a person. That person is Jesus Christ. We believe that 100 billion years from now, we will all still exist, all of us. Where we will be is wholly and solely tied up in whether we believe and trust 
or whether we disbelieve and reject this paragraph we'll look at today. So it's of tremendous importance. Our hope and prayer today is that the sermon would answer some of the questions you in particular have about Jesus Christ and that you would commit your life to him and trust him. Or if you're not at that point yet, that you would consider spending more time with someone trying to understand the claims that Christ makes. But Christian or not, Philippians 2 is a real summit point in the entire Bible when it comes to understanding who Jesus is, the one we've been singing about today. So we're going to start mid-sentence down in verse 6. Philippians 2, 6, and uh, it'll be on the screens behind me as well. So let's read along. It says, who, speaking of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These six verses only span three sentences, and yet they stretch from eternity past while simultaneously stretching all the way as far forward as the future can go, describing the outcome of all people. There's so much to be said here. Entire books, of course, are written on those three sentences. But it breaks down easily into two broad categories. I wonder if you saw those as we read it together. The first section talks about the sacrifice that Jesus made. So Jesus' sacrifice. While the second section talks about how Jesus was exalted as a result of that sacrifice. So I want to spend the next few minutes together with you, just reasoning through briefly what Paul writes here about Jesus, his sacrifice and his exaltation. Let's take his sacrifice first. Verses uh, 6 through 8 are all about Jesus' humble self-denial for the good of other people. And it's incredibly dense, theologically thick material about Jesus We are not in the kiddie pool today. We are all the way in the deep ocean. Uh, How many of you like fruitcake? Anybody? Really? Wow. It's only that little section. A few of you over here. All right. You people are strange. Fruitcake is disgusting. It's not even chewable. My point is, uh, fruitcake is incredibly Dense, thick, hard to chew, even harder to swallow. This is a fruitcake kind of passage. There's just so much in it. And yet I hope we will all bite and swallow. Uh, There are five really significant truths about Christ that Paul gives us here. I just want to breeze through them quickly and Lord willing, some other time we'll be able to dwell on them more carefully together. First, Paul tells us that Jesus pre-existed before the first century. Uh, Friends, hardly anyone 
religious or secular, Christian or Muslim, Mormon or Hindu, would reject the fact that a person named Christ lived in the first century. Now, there's all kinds of debate about the significance of his life, but that he existed, that he was born as a Jewish man, is no surprise to essentially anyone. But what Paul tells us here is that Jesus didn't come into existence when he was born, that he already existed prior to his birth. So that sentence in verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, is talking about before he came to earth and that he emptied himself in coming to earth. Yes, Jesus was born in the first century in the Middle East, but he existed before he was a Jewish baby boy. In fact, he always existed. Which points us to the second thing that Paul very clearly says. He says Jesus is God. Verse 6 says that Jesus was in the form of God. That first kind of strikes us probably as an odd way of saying something. But what he's doing is he's saying Jesus was in the form of God forever. And he's contrasting that with the form of a servant that he later became. So he's always God but he also became a man. You see, Jesus existed with the Father and with the Spirit from the very beginning. He's God. His exact nature is the same as the Father and the Spirit. He's he's divine. He's God himself. Jesus is not just a nice guy, although he is that. He's not just a good leader or a moral teacher. From eternity past and as Buzz Lightyear would say, to infinity and beyond, Jesus is God. He's always been, he always will be. If you lose that idea, then you lose Christianity. If you lose the notion that Jesus is not just a great moral teacher and a good example, then you no longer have biblical Christianity. When I was in college, um, I was told over and over and over, I went to a a secular state school and uh, was a speech major. I know it doesn't really show, but studied this kind of thing a lot and gave lots of speeches about Christ in a public arena among majority of people who are not Christians and was constantly told, the Bible never says Jesus is God. Have you heard that? Now, I didn't know enough. I didn't know the Bible well enough. I wasn't mature enough in my faith and emotionally was volatile, so I was just batted around by that. Honestly, did not know how to handle it, how to process it, how to respond. People much, much smarter than me publicly saying, the Bible doesn't say Jesus is God. So what would I do? Of course, go home, Google. It wasn't Google then, it was AOL, but Jesus is God, quotation marks. And guess what? Those three words in that order are not in the entire Bible. So then my faith, which was incredibly weak, was in turmoil. So if we mean by that the Bible doesn't use the three words in this order, Jesus is God, that's true. But to say that the Bible doesn't claim Jesus to be God is complete ignorance. It's everywhere. 
And this is clearly one of those places. The claim that Jesus is God fills the pages of the Bible. Now, third, and really the point of emphasis of Paul in this passage is that Jesus is humble. Would you hear the humility in this as I read it again? Who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus, the one who's always been, God himself, didn't cling to his rights as God. He didn't self-protect. He didn't clamor to keep power. He didn't hoard his rights out of fear of losing them. He didn't demand the right to remain in the glory of heaven. Instead, he gave up the praise of angels for the stench of a manger. That's humility. Friends, the God of Christianity is a shockingly humble God, stunningly humble. No other religion has a God like this, simply without comparison. Love compelled him to sacrifice himself so that human beings could be restored to a right relationship with God. A God who serves and loves and sacrifices, that's the God of Christianity. Jesus is a humble king, and he's gathering people into his humble kingdom. That's why the way of life in the kingdom is that we would be a humble people. It's been said that Christianity is an upside-down kingdom, meaning it's, it's not a kingdom of power and might like we think of power and might of the world. It's a kingdom of service. It's a kingdom of love. It's a kingdom of grace. Greatness, you see, is found not in retaining power and being served, but in giving up power in order to serve. The happiest among us are those who have discovered this, or those who have learned what one pastor calls the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Now, fourth, Paul says that Jesus added humanity to his deity. Jesus, in other words, while he was still God, became human. Theologians have long called this the incarnation, that the idea that God, Jesus himself, left heaven and took on flesh. Now, frankly, if you find that hard to believe, then you're a sane, rational person. If you find it hard to understand, then you're honest. I cannot pretend to fully comprehend how this is possible. And yet, without question, it is what the Bible claims to have happened. And it is the very best possible explanation for what history has shown us. For the first few centuries after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and ascension, the church early church leaders struggled to harmonize this idea that Jesus is both God and man because the Bible very clearly says both. So for several hundred years, they grappled with that idea. And they came to the conclusion that the unified voice of Scripture, 
and thus the unified voice of the church is that miraculously Jesus is both God and man. Probably the place this is the clearest in the whole Bible is not Philippians 2, it's John 1. John 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. This is a way of referring to Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, meaning God the Father. All things were made through Him, that's through Jesus, and without Him was not anything that was made. And then later in the chapter it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In my early days of growing as a Christian in college and then in graduate school, this was incredibly hard for me to accept. How can someone, how can eternal, always been, not limited in any way, God, take on flesh? At the end of the day, I would have to say, I don't know. But that's clearly what happened. That's clearly what the Bible tells us and what we must believe. Origen, an Egyptian leader in the second century, wrote this about Philippians 2. In emptying himself, he, Jesus, became a man and was incarnate while remaining truly God. Having become a man, he remained the God that he was. He assumed a body like our own, differing only in that he was born from the virgin by the Holy Spirit. If you're here today, you're not a Christian, you're hearing this for the first time. Christians are weirder than you thought. We believe God entered humanity as a human being while still being God. You cannot follow Christ and not believe that. That is the very heart of Christianity. Five, a fifth thing Paul tells us is that Jesus died on a cross. All of these four things stacked up upon each other lead us to verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now this passage doesn't tell us why Jesus died on the cross, but the rest of the Bible does. In a nutshell, Jesus died as a substitute for all of his people. See, because God is just, sin must be dealt with. And all of us have sinned. And so it's either our death or the death of a substitute. And in humble love and stunning sacrifice, Jesus came and offered himself in our place as our substitute. So his death for our sin could be exchanged with his life for our life. Amen? So that's Jesus' sacrifice. That eternal God gave up the glory of heaven. Gave up perfect union with the Father and the Spirit. Gave up all people, all angels worshiping him to be a poor, 
Jewish man without a home who was despised and rejected by his own people and then died a horrendous death, alone, bearing the curse of our sin. The second portion of the paragraph, though, doesn't leave us in the depths of that curse. No, it raises us up. It's Jesus' exaltation. It says in verse 9, Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, the, the hinge, if you will, between Jesus' sacrifice and Jesus' exaltation is that therefore in verse 9. It's because Jesus humbled himself to the extreme of dying on a cross that the Father brought about the resurrection and that he says, now all eyes when rightly placed, are rightly placed on Christ. That it's precisely because he humbled himself that now all of worship for all of eternity belongs on Jesus. You see, Jesus came back to life three days after dying. Why does that matter? Well, friends, that changes everything. You see, Jesus throughout his life claimed all kinds of things for himself. I made a list of a few. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be a king. He claimed to be the world's hope for salvation. He claimed to be God himself. He claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. And then he died. And it would certainly seem that if Jesus was indeed all of those things, then he wouldn't die right? How does a king who will sit on a throne forever lie in a grave? And so when he died a torturous death, everyone thought, case closed. Jesus is just another in a long line of religious disappointments. He's another in a long line of arrogant Religious leaders who claimed things for themselves that can't possibly be true. No one, no one thought Christianity would continue. That was the end. And yet, precisely because Jesus went that far, Paul tells us the Father vindicated him. He, he brought him back to a new life. And that new life then became the life offered to every person of every tribe, tongue, and nation who would claim Christ for themselves. When the Father defeated the devil and resurrected the Son, he showed Jesus to be worthy of all praise. So that's why verse 11 says that he gave Jesus the title or the name, Lord. That doesn't mean much to us, but to the Philippians in the first century as they're reading, hearing this letter read to them, what they would have been used to hearing is Caesar 
is Lord. Caesar is Lord. You bow to him. Your safety, your security, your well-being is all tied up in Rome. But here this little band of believers, much like us, a little band of believers, said, no, Jesus is Lord. Friends, for now there's debate and speculation about Jesus. For now, some people believe him while others reject him. For now, some worship and some doubt. Some mock and some give their entire lives to him. But it won't always be this way. The mixed bag that we are in this room today about who is Jesus will not exist forever. That's what Paul is telling us. Jesus will be seen by all as the glorious God he is. All will name him Lord. The question for every person that's ever existed is not whether you'll call on Jesus as Lord, but when you will call on Jesus as Lord. Will you do it now and enjoy a new relationship with him that'll last forever? Or will you do it after it's too late to receive the benefits of being a Christian? I don't think there's any possible way I can do justice to this passage. But what Paul is saying is that Jesus is pre-existent, incarnate, humble, God, self-sacrificing, exalted, worshipped, ruling, reigning Savior, Lord. That's Jesus. So Christians, are you encouraged today being reminded of the character of God? This is the God we've been singing about today. Perhaps some of us who are undecided about the Bible's claims would consider now studying him further, grabbing somebody in the room that you know believes in Christ, meeting up this week, reading more of the scriptures and asking the hard questions. We believe there's nothing to hide that both the Bible and history show us Jesus is God. Maybe some in this room are even ready to turn from sin and submit to Jesus as Lord. And so we would say, go for it now. Now, don't wait. All of these responses to this passage are wonderful, and I thank God for them. But they're not the reason this passage is in the Bible. As I studied this this week, my compulsion is to want to urge non-Christians to come to Christ because of how clearly we see who Jesus is here. But as Paul sat in a Roman prison and he dictated these words and Timothy recorded them, the chief main people in his mind were not the non-Christians who would hear this letter. They were the Christians. How do we know that? We'll look back at verse 1. It says this. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, 
any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In other words, church, get along. Do nothing from rivalry of conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then everything else we just said. Friends, Paul's point is Christians think like Jesus. Christians, think like Jesus so that you'll learn to live like Jesus. Christians, live humbly together by thinking about each other the way Jesus thinks. It turns out the soaring heights of Jesus' sacrifice and exaltation are recorded in Philippians 2 to press into our hearts the supreme example of humble servanthood that we find in Christ. Everything I've said thus far in the sermon has its goal of our shared experience as the people of God at Church on Mill. See, we're Jesus' people. We put the gospel on display in how we treat each other. And so really what this passage is about is Jesus shows us how we ought to treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. I find that incredible that he takes the example of Jesus in order to tell us, don't fight and bicker. Don't be selfish. When someone hurts you in the church, forgive them. When there's a spat, don't run away. Work it out. Why? Because your mama told you so. No. Because Jesus is our Savior and our Lord, and that's how Jesus lives. Jesus shows us how to think about fellow Christians who are difficult to love. Some of you are hard to love. I am hard to love. Jesus shows us how to approach the Sunday worship gathering, and from it spills out the life of the church every day of the week. Jesus shows us what to do when we notice a Christian in sin. Jesus shows us what to do when a a sister in Christ is in a time of deep confusion and hardship. Jesus shows us how to follow and submit to those who have spiritual authority over us. Jesus is our example. Now, just to be clear, he's not our example of pre-existence. He's not our example of how to incarnate. He's not our example of how to die on a cross. His example, though, is a way of thinking, humble, loving, self-sacrificing thoughts. Those are the thoughts believers are to have. Many of you were here a few weeks ago. You'll remember we talked about honoring Christ as our highest ambition. Anybody remember that? That our, our, 
our chief aim, our highest goal and aspiration in life is to honor Christ. And here, Paul says, how do you honor me? How do you honor Jesus? You honor Jesus by thinking like Jesus. Now, how does he do that? Well, it's pretty fascinating. Philippians 2 tells us to follow Jesus' example through giving us a passionate, emotional appeal to our salvation. Now, I'm a pretty cranial guy. I'm a thinker. I can't believe it, but my life is full of books, and I'm constantly tinkering with ideas. But Paul, in verse 1 of chapter 2, he's giving us thoughts, but he's driving at our emotions. He's wanting us to re-experience when we came to faith in Christ. So those of you in the room who have had the experience of being born again, of becoming a Christian, can you remember what that moment was like when you went from sinner to saint, from dead to alive, from slave to passions that were controlling you, to slave to Christ? Do you remember that day? Now, I'm not, I know this is a Baptist church, but I'm not saying you've got to know the day and the hour and you had to walk an aisle. That's uh, abnormal to Christianity in the Bible. I did it, but that was um, the first great awakening that brought that method about in America. It's not the Bible itself. So wherever you were, however you came to faith in Christ, do you remember it? Are you awake? Do you remember it? That is a miracle. So Paul says in, in verse 1, since there's encouragement in Christ, he's saying, when you came to see who Jesus is and what he did for you, and that was married with your own awareness of your moral brokenness and helplessness, then Christ saved you. There's no deeper encouragement than that. Nothing uplifts the heart like coming to experience the unconditional love of Christ. Nothing. Since there's comfort from love. Do you remember, friend, when you came to see the perfect love of God for you as an imperfect person? That ought to affect us emotionally, not just cranially. He says, since there's participation in the Spirit, when we're saved, God brought us into fellowship with himself. And not only that, he brought us into participation with his people. So a whole bunch of us who didn't have a family now have a family. A whole bunch of us who didn't have a father now have a perfect father. A whole bunch of us who have never met brothers or sisters, have brothers and sisters. That's the church, the family of God. And then he ends with, since there's affection and sympathy, meaning God had affection and sympathy for you and for me. We did not deserve it. We were far worse than we thought. But Jesus rescued us. 
Christians are shared experience of coming to see God's love and forgiveness in Christ for us is what makes this happen. We don't move past it to something more significant. We just grow deeper and deeper and deeper in the gospel. Salvation is what transforms us into self-sacrificing servants like our Savior, not trying harder. So do you see the supernatural love poured out for you by Christ? Do you remember that God saved you? Then don't be driven by selfish ambition. Step back from pride and tell it to go away. And instead, live humbly as God's people, giving ourselves to each other for Christ's sake. Friends, let's realize the tremendous importance of unity and love and service between Christians for the sake of the gospel. We talked several weeks ago about an acronym for joy. Anybody remember it? Jesus, others, yourself. That was awesome. Jesus, others, yourself. It's cheesy, yes. But it's true. Jesus first. Others next. Ourselves last. Now that's a tall order, isn't it? Even with Christ, that does not come naturally or easily we still battle temptations to pride, arrogance, selfishness, or at least I do. How do we actually become people who think like Christ? How does that happen? Like if you're hearing this and you're more beat up than you are encouraged, how does that change? How do we as Christians learn to actually think like Christ? Well, friends, Jesus is, as this passage so clearly says, our example of sacrificial thinking, of self-sacrificial living. He is the example. Without a doubt, the commands of the passage are complete the joy of your leaders by living a self-sacrificing life as you think like Christ. Jesus is the example, but he's also the means. He, he's not a detached example that's up on a board, up on a wall, with his finger sticking out, saying, I'm looking for a few good men and women who will try hard to behave like me. It's easy to hear that passage that way. Look real carefully at verse 5. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
Friends, the commands to learn to think like Jesus isn't drum up something that you don't have access to. And if you don't, God's going to punish you. Rather, the command is daily ask God to peel back the layers of sin you're still struggling with and tap into the mind of Christ that's already been given to you because Christ is in you. You see, the Christian life is a supplied life. We don't become humble people through self-determination. We become humble people by turning from ourselves to Christ and relying on Him. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's a lie, Christian, that you cannot learn to live an others-oriented life. You can, because you have the mind of Christ. Imagine with me for a moment being joyfully caught up in loving concern from others. Imagine being freed from the shackles of selfishness. Imagine a church revolutionized by this stunning view of Christ to such a degree that we consistently live daily life with love for each other. Imagine fear being foreign, guilt being gone, shame being shattered to such a degree that we actually daily live in the mind of Christ. We would be a lighthouse God would use to draw all kinds of people to Christ. Friends, there is a flicker of this light here. But let's ask God to make it a gigantic, blazing sun. Because we're full up in a town desperately in need of the light of Christ. And the chief way the Bible lays out that we will reach the world with the light of Christ is not as we individually go out all our separate ways and try really hard to be good Christians. It's as the quality of our shared life as a church creates an environment, a community, a culture so otherworldly that people say, what in the heck is wrong with you people? And we say, Christ is in us. Brothers and sisters, you won't be asked to die on a cross. That's already been done by the perfect one. But make no mistake, you are called to die daily. We're to die to our selfish ambitions and instead to serve each other with Christ's love. And God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. So that sounds incredibly strange to us. And yet you will find as you move away from selfishness towards selflessness, as you move from religious duty into delight in Christ, 
that life just gets better and better and better, even as it gets harder and harder and harder. Am I wrong? Paradoxically, it is better to give than to receive. As someone, frankly, that's lived the majority of my life morbidly focused on myself, I can with all sincerity say, as I'm just beginning to tread water in a life for Christ and for you, I am experiencing joy unlike anything else I've ever known. Jesus, others, yourself. Jesus modeled it. And that same way of thinking is given to us in Christ. So what do you do with a message like this? If you're here and you don't know Christ, I pray you'll repent. You'll turn from sin and turn to him and discover the life we've been talking about today. And if you already are in Christ, maybe you too need to repent of a life lived for self. Start afresh and anew. There's grace for you. And then simply ask this question. Father, who is one person in my church that I can do one thing today for? What is one thing I can do to encourage someone else spiritually? That's a prayer God will answer. Because in that, you're asking him for humility. And you're tapping back into the life of Christ. That's yours. This morning, I came across a quote. I'll end with this. Out of uh, mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis famously wrote, Don't imagine that if you met a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, swarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Perhaps all you'll think of him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to see ourselves as you see us. To trust that what Christ did and who Christ is has changed us. I pray for my brothers and sisters here today that they would re-experience the joy of their salvation. And that, God, the deep appreciation for being rescued out of sin and adopted into your family would compel us out of selfish ambition and into selfless service. And, God, we pray for joy to be found quickly as we experience the right order 
Jesus, others, yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.